Bird Park, USA. I'm Tavis Smiley. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. So glad to see you and me back in stride again. Our phone number, 1-800-920-1580. 1-800-920-1580. All of our socials can be found at KBLA 1580. That's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Everything at KBLA 1580. Let me also invite you to download our app right now at KBLA 1580. Download the app and take us with you anywhere in the world. And listen to us in real time, but only if you download the app right now at KBLA 1580. Should you miss us any day in real time, check out the podcast of this program by going to the app, the website, Anchor, Spotify, Apple, so many places to get the podcast of this program and listen at your leisure should you miss us any day in real time. But I am delighted to have you along live with us today for the next three hours. Um, let me also invite you to follow me on Facebook and Instagram at the real Tavis Smiley and get Twitter updates at Tavis Smiley. Another great show on tap for you today. In our second hour, we all recognize a lame apology when we hear one. In fact, I heard a lame apology yesterday. So, so why is it so hard then to apologize? Well, what makes for a sincere apology? How can we do apologies better in 2023 and beyond? Sorry, sorry, sorry. We will make the case for good apologies in our two when we are joined by Marjorie Ingle and Susan McCarthy. In our third hour, we'll talk with one of the most successful black men, uh, black businessmen in the country, uh, the man who led Nike's Jordan brand from a $200 million sneaker company to a $4 billion global apparel juggernaut. Larry Miller on his journey from the violent streets of West Philly to the upper echelons of American sports and industry in hour three. But in this first hour today, two more conversations on the B side of this hour. Followers of a particular politician protest the outcome of an election that they say was rigged and stolen. They trash government offices and draw condemnation from their government and the international community. Sound familiar? You bet it does, especially after our conversation just yesterday with Stephen A. Sund, who was head of the U.S. Capitol Police and was forced to resign as the fall guy after the January 6th insurrection. Quick pivot. If you missed that conversation yesterday with former Chief Sund, you don't want to. Uh, uh, let me just say, go to the go to the podcast. Just check out the podcast if you missed it. I was going to try to explain it. I ain't got time for that. Um, but go check out the podcast of our conversation with uh, former Chief Sund yesterday, and hear firsthand from the guy who was in charge that day, who ended up again becoming the fall guy. Nancy Pelosi called for his resignation immediately in D.C. Somebody always gets blamed for something. He became the fall guy. But yesterday, he came on this program. Uh, and explained to us uh, in connection with his new book called Courage Under Fire, what really happened inside the Capitol. Um, so if you missed the conversation yesterday with uh, Stephen Sund, check out our podcast of that conversation. Anyway, as I was saying, uh, all that sounds familiar, right? Uh, but the insurrection we're talking about today is not in Washington, but in Brazil. The Brazil Capitol riots. On the backside of this hour, Bloomberg columnist Eduardo Porter on why the Brazil capital riots will not be the last U.S.-inspired insurrection. Turns out that democracy ain't the only thing we're inspiring around the world. We're inspiring insurrections as well. We'll talk about why this won't be the last one with Eduardo Porter of Bloomberg 
uh, in uh, the B-side, on the B-side of this hour. That said, we welcome today's program, and we commence today's program in conversation with Dr. Georges Benjamin, Executive Director of the American Public Health Association, about this season of triple-demic and how these new COVID-19 variants are impacting our well-being. Dr. Benjamin, good to have you on this program, sir. How are you today? Travis, I'm doing fine. How are you? Man, if I complained, I'd be an ingrate. I'm just uh, glad to be alive and glad to be on the air and glad to be in dialogue with you for these 30 minutes. And uh, I thank you for the time. Uh, let me start with, uh, with a broad question. How would you frame uh, this moment that we are in uh, health-wise? Uh, we all know that we're in this, uh, this stage, in this age of triple-demic. But at this particular moment, how would you describe the, uh, can I put it this way, the conundrum health-wise that we find ourselves in as American citizens? Yeah, I think we have three. I think we have three challenges. Obviously, it's cold and flu season, which we're going to come back to, with um, you know um, COVID and all the respiratory viruses we have. But I think my biggest concern is that for the last two and a half years, we've been pretty sedentary. We've been sitting on our butts, um, and we have not been you know getting the proper cancer screenings and health screenings that we need to have. Um, and for our community, particularly the African American community, which is disproportionately impacted. Um, by serious, serious chronic diseases, um, we've got to pay a lot of attention to that. And I think the third part of that, of course, is our mental health. You know, we, we really have some real issues around mental health. So physical health screenings um, and mental health, big issues that we've got to pay attention to. And then on top of that, we have this triple demic going on right now. Mm. What, what, what do you make um, of, the, of, of this triple demic? I mean, I, I never imagined as a young person um, uh, that we'd be in a situation where we're, you know, fighting this sort of triangular uh, health uh, uh, drama all at one time. But what what do you make of this triple demic that we're in? Well, you know, remember, we did two of these, you know, two of these diseases have been around a long time. So RSV, even though it's more prevalent right now, that's that respiratory syncytial virus that pretty much impacts very, very um, young babies and kids um, and older adults. And then, of course, that's complicated by COVID. But look, we've got a vaccine for COVID, and we have a vaccine for flu, and we have screening tests for all three of those viruses. So the truth of the matter is that we can do a lot to prevent ourselves from getting really sick um, or dying from um, those diseases. We just have to do it. Just getting started in conversation with Dr. Georges Benjamin, who is the executive director of the American Public Health Association. You're listening to KBLA Talk 15. Talking to Dr. George Benjamin, who is the executive director of the American Public Health Association. As you all know, uh, we are fighting a triple-demic uh, right about now and uh, having a, a brief conversation here for a few more minutes uh, about uh, these uh, COVID-19 variants and how they are impacting our well-being in the midst of this uh, triple-demic. Uh, Dr. Benjamin, let me, get your, let me get your take on how you think we are faring uh, at this point in the fight against COVID. I think most of us have figured out that we're always going to be uh, perennially for the rest of our lives in, in a fight against some form of variant. And uh, as I understand it from all the experts I've spoken to and uh, all the stuff I'm reading, uh, we'll be taking booster shots and, and vaccines from, from, from now uh, through eternity to stay ahead of um, fighting successfully these kinds of variants. But at this stage, it's been a few, we're a few years in now. At this stage of the game, what's your sense of how we're doing in the fight against COVID-19? Well, we know what we can do. We have got a lot of tools to, to, do, to address this um, terrible disease. But truth of the matter is, we're still inadequately vaccinated. Um, you know, we um, got a lot of people with the initial vaccine. 
Um, but this new bivalent vaccine, which is much more protective, we've only got about 15 percent of our population vaccinated. And I think the real tragedy is that, you know, we started out with these disparities where people of color were not getting adequately vaccinated. We fixed that problem initially. And now we're creating disparities again because people are not getting the new bivalent vaccine. Mm. That's a real problem. Um, is it your sense that the American public writ large or more expressly people of color specifically uh, are suffering from vaccine fatigue? Yeah, we're all tired of it. You know, we want to return to normal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the challenge we have is that we can return to almost all of our normal activities, but it requires some protections, requires some caution. That means washing your hands. That means wearing a mask in appropriate settings. But it also means making sure that you have all of the protections that you can get, which means getting adequately vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Um, what's your What's your read on how we're dealing with um, uh, this bivalent vaccine and these different variations in the workplace specifically? When this thing started a few years ago, there were all kinds of rules. Uh, employers were trying to figure out, for that matter, the government was trying to, well, government is a big employer, trying to figure out uh, how to manage people um, in the midst of uh, a pandemic. Now we're in a triple-demic. What's your sense of how we um, corporately are doing in the workplace uh, managing this crisis? Yeah, I, I think most of the work, workers and employers have figured out how to manage this in the workplace. I think the biggest issue now, of course, is figuring out how to you know, what the future of work is. You know, when do we need to be in work? Where can we work from home? When we can come in the office? Um, but in general, it's safe to come into the office to work. Um, if you, but again, you need to be vaccinated. That's the most important thing. And, you know, the reason we didn't have so much disease over the last two years of flu or RSV or these other things was because we were wearing a mask. We were staying away from each other. We were washing our hands much more frequently. So it turns out that the the tools that we have to protect us from COVID are exactly the same tools that protect us from these other respiratory diseases. I was just reading an article this morning, um, one of the many articles I was reading before I came on the air, and this one was specifically about Bob Iger, who has returned as the CEO of Disney. Iger had been CEO for years, for those who follow this kind of stuff. Um, Bob Iger uh, ran Disney, I think it's fair to say, quite successfully. Uh, in the aftermath of uh, Michael Eisner many years ago, Iger eventually stepped down a while ago, uh, was replaced, and his replacement wasn't meeting the expectations of the board of directors for Disney, and so they just brought Bob Iger back uh, to run Disney once again. And I was reading an article this morning, the, the headline was, Bob Iger puts his foot down, and he has sent an, uh, an email out to uh, company-wide at Disney, that for all those persons who've been working from home, they now have to report back to the office four days a week. At least four days a week, if you work at Disney, uh, Mr. Iger says you have to come back into the office. Now, why am I raising I'm raising that because uh, I'm also reading uh, comments from various health directors around the country, including the one here, uh, Dr. Barbara Ferrer in Los Angeles County, where this radio station is flagshipped. Uh, and they're suggesting that given what's happening in this era of triple-demic, that people return to wearing masks when they're indoors in crowds of people. You see where I'm going with this. you got health officials saying wear masks indoors when you're amongst crowds of people and CEOs of certain companies like Bob Iger at Disney saying y'all got to come back inside four days a week. How do I juxtapose those two things? Uh, put on the mask. <laughs> I think, you, I think um, you know, if they feel that they need to come back into the office in order to build the cohesion, uh, of their workforce, that makes a lot of sense. Um, but they need to continue to do the things to protect 
um, their workforce. And if that means wearing a mask, then they should they should wear the mask. Also, remember though that um, in many of the Disney places, they're in warm weather communities, even in the winter. Mm-hmm. And so the bulk of what they're doing is outdoors. So um, when they're indoors, they'll wear their mask, and when they're outdoors, they can take their mask off. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned people of color a few moments ago, and I want to come back to that specifically because. Um, and I used, you used the word people of color. I used the phrase perennial. Let me combine those two things. Um, it seems that we are perennially in a fight uh, trying to get people of color, specifically African-Americans, uh, to take the virus seriously and to take the vaccine seriously. Um, what's your sense of where we are in that fight? We've made some efforts. We've made some progress in that. But we still have a lot to go look. People um, don't follow the medical advice because they're not being talked to by trusted messengers quite often. Uh, And look, we have a distrust of the health system fundamentally. Um, And I got to tell you that I'm part of the medical system, and we quite, you know, rightfully um, haven't done our job. Um, You know, I mean, what I mean by that is we 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 deserve to be distrusted when we haven't treated people respectfully. Um, and equally in, in, our, in our practices. And so we do need to do a much better job of doing that. That's why people don't trust us. This isn't about Tuskegee. This isn't about old um, insults. This is about how, you know, Mr. Jones and Mrs. Johnson was treated yesterday within the healthcare system. Until we make sure that everybody's treated equity with equity everywhere as they go, we're going to have those problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked earlier about vaccine fatigue, uh, even in the midst of this uh, new variant, uh, COVID-19 variant, variant, that is. We were talking about vaccine fatigue earlier. But the other thing that, that uh, it seems to seems pretty obvious to me is one in the media. You're in the medical profession. I'm in the media, obviously. And I, I, I noticed these kinds of things. Um, COVID-19, and I'm not surprised at all by this, but COVID-19 is no longer grabbing headlines. Uh, it clearly still poses a threat. But it's not grabbing headlines the way that it used to. And again, being in the media business, I get that. Um, you you drive a story for so long, and then you you move on to something else. Because just like everyday people have vaccine fatigue, folk in the media get tired of covering the same story. Unless, of course, it's Donald Trump. We get tired of covering the same, and even Trump. Now we're sick of covering him. But we 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 get tired of covering the same story over and over and over again. And you're trying to find unique ways to frame it, unique ways to spin it. And over time, you just find that even though, again, it remains a serious threat, people are still dying from it. Uh, it doesn't grab the headlines uh, that it once did. Um, what's your critique of how the media, um, who obviously government uh, and the medical community are relying on to get messages out, how we're treating this issue at the moment? Yeah, I, I think that the, the media needs to um, continue to cover it for sure. But I do think that there's a, a need for some more level setting, because the truth of the matter is um, COVID is a real problem. Respiratory diseases are a real problem. But, you know, flu season is going to peak and then go away. RSV is probably already peaked and is beginning to go away. And quite frankly, I wish that the media would pivot to the, the leading causes of death, cardiovascular disease, cancer, helping people stopping the smoke. Um, focusing a lot more on the mental health problems because we've got some significant mental health problems. We've got issues continuing with gun violence. So I wish the media would would, um, spend more time now focusing on those things that are really plaguing uh, communities, and particularly in the black community, because we still have too many people dying from preventable diseases that 
we need to be better educated about, and then the visibility of those diseases need to be raised. As executive director of the American Public Health Association, uh, APHA, uh, I'm not surprised to hear that comment come out of your mouth. Let me just let me just uh, address that uh, for a moment in the time that we have left here. Um, you you ran a few a few challenges that we are uh, confronted uh, with in this country vis-a-vis our health. Let me let me go to two or three of those and and, uh, and get your read on a few things with regard to mental health. And this issue has been uh, discussed a lot lately on this station and even on this program. In light of a number of things, in light of the fact that Twitch, uh, Ellen DeGeneres' longtime DJ, uh, uh, killed himself uh, some weeks ago, uh, as have other black men increasingly, as you well know. Um, We uh, have talked about mental health in terms of Kanye's outburst uh, of late and all the trouble that got him in and all the money he lost because of those outbursts. So from time to time, we find our way into a conversation about mental health, but we only find our way into a conversation about mental health when something bizarre, something strange, something devastating, something dire like those kinds of incidents happen. Um, is it your is it your belief? Uh, I'm sure it is your hope. But is it your belief that we will ever take the issue of mental health in this country more seriously? Uh, I, I hope so. And I advocate for us doing that every day and recognize that um, everybody ought to pay attention to their to their their, their mental health and their well-being. Almost every one of us will be in need of some component of addressing our mental health in our lifetime. So this is not something for a few people. Um, and obviously suicide is the, um, the most serious problem that we have here um, because the person is going to die. But we have all kinds of issues around depression. We have issues with chronic schizophrenia. We have issues with just um, people being lonely. There's a whole range of, of spectrum of things we have to address. So we ought to accept it and, and get rid of the stigma and stop saying it's their problem and recognizing it's our problem. You also mentioned gun violence. Um, as a member of the media, um, I get tired of talking about gun violence, and I have colleagues I know who feel similarly. It's an issue that we find ourselves discussing every day because every day on the local news there's some story uh, about gun violence. We can't seem to get away from it. So if you're in the news business as I am, you get tired of talking about gun violence every day and wish that something reasonable, uh, sensible could be done about it. If you're a politician and you are for gun control, you get tired of talking about it. You get tired of pushing for, again, sensible, reasonable gun control legislation in this country. Uh, you probably see where I'm going with this. If you're in the medical community, how frustrating must it be for you and your cohorts uh, to see this issue, you know, given relatively uh, little attention and nothing serious has been done about it in quite a while in this country. Oh, I'm 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 personally very frustrated with it. I spent the first half of my medical career practicing emergency medicine. Um, a few of those years in the D.C. General Hospital in Washington D.C., um, watching those gun um, victims come into the hospital emergency department. Let me tell you. Um, we know how to do this prevention around gun violence. We need to get the political will. And until the public begins to demand that of our elected officials, it's not going to change. So the way to fix this, we, we have the science to fix it. We need to demand that our public officials uh, address it and go, as you said, to sensible gun laws. And I hope that the media never gets tired of this. In fact, I would hope the media will redouble their efforts um, to hold elected officials accountable. Yeah. Um, it, it seems to me that there are <clears throat> two issues in this country 
with regard to personnel shortages that we have got to keep our eye on and not just keep our eye on, but um, figure out a plan for how we're going to arrest this development. Um, This is uh, what I'm about to say, I'm sure is true of more than just two industries, but there are two industries where there are major shortages and it concerns me. Uh, And I suspect many who are listening to this program right now. Um, There are teacher shortages. I just was in a conversation about that the other day on this program. Uh, There are teacher shortages and something has to be done about that. What do you do years down the road from now when you don't have enough teachers to teach your students? It's one thing to debate how we're doing education and how it ought to be done better. It's a far different issue when there is a flat out teacher shortage when folk don't want to go in that profession. And you know where I'm going with this as well. The data also tell us that we are already facing, and it's about to become more acute, uh, a shortage of physicians. How does a democracy advance when there's a shortage of teachers and a shortage of physicians? No, there's no question about that. Um, you got to pay teachers better. There's no question about that. That's a money problem um, and, and a respect problem, giving them the resources they need in the classroom to teach. Um, for physicians, you know, that, that is a challenge. We, we, we have to address it. Um, they're retiring in droves. Mm-hmm. Uh, but let me tell you, I think it's an even bigger problem when there's a nursing shortage. Mm-hmm. I am, quite frankly, more worried about the nursing shortage because the truth of the matter is I, I, I love being a doc, um, but there's nothing docs can do if we don't have nurses. Yeah. Um, and um, you're concerned about it, <laughs> but as the head of the American Public Health Association, um, what's the plan? What's the, what, what are your thoughts about how we fix it, how we arrest it? Yeah, we, we, we have to, it's not, it's not just a pain, we're going to pay them more, of course, but that's not the big issue. Mm-hmm. The issue is that we have to train more. We have to build the infrastructure. Right now, if we had many, many more people that want to go into nursing, we do not have the educational infrastructure, goes back to your teaching point, Mm -hmm. to actually train all the nurses that we need to do the job. And by the way, as um, we all enter, um, those of us, I'm a baby boomer, enter our our seniorhood, we don't have a long-term care system to take care of them. And again, by the way, that's nurses. Yep. America's got some challenges, uh, and uh, hopefully we are up to the task. Dr. Georges Benjamin is executive director of the American Public Health Association, the APHA. Doc, thanks for your time. Thanks for your work and your witness. All the best to you in this year. Tavis, thank you very much. Good to have you on. More of Tavis Smiley after news, traffic, and sports. You're listening to KBLA Talk 15.